This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Last week, I did a survey on social media. I recognize that my followers are probably biased and more aware of the ABCDEF bundle than the general ICU community. So these results may not fully capture the practices and mentalities at large. Nonetheless, I learned a lot from the responses they provided. The first question I asked was, does your team practice the ABCDEF bundle? 65% said yes, 35% said no. I then asked more probing questions about specific practices and shared that the real purpose of the ABCDF bundle was to quote, produce patients who are more awake, cognitively engaged, and physically active to facilitate patient autonomy and the ability to express unmet physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, unquote. I later asked again, with that understanding, does your team really practice the ABCDF bundle? The initial 65% yes turned to 13%, and the original 35% no then turned to 87%. I also asked, Does your team automatically sedate after every intubation? 92% said yes. 8% said no. I asked, when does your team do awakening trials? 46% said not until ventilator settings are minimal. 54% said when there's no longer an indication for sedation. Next question was, does your team usually mobilize intubated patients? 40% said yes. 60% said no. How long after intubation until your patients are usually doing their highest level of mobility? 9 percent said 0 to 24 hours. 15 percent said 24 to 48 hours. 25 percent said 48 to 72 hours. And 51 percent said 3 to 8 days. I asked, does your team automatically start fentanyl drips for every intubated patient? 47 percent said yes. 53 percent said no. I asked, what does your team generally see as the objective of the ABCDEF bundle? 67 percent said it's an on and off switch for sedation. 32% said to keep patients as awake and mobile as possible. I asked, when does your team do SATs? 25% said early AM on night shift. 69% said day shift. 5% said when family is available slash need for sedation is gone. Next question, what does your team do when a patient is a RAS plus one or plus two? 69% said restart sedation. 31% said find and treat the cause of symptoms. Next question, what does your team do when a patient has failed their SBT? 24% said continue to mobilize and rehabilitate. 76% said restart sedation. That is a huge problem. Next question, does your team use benzodiazepines? 89% said yes. 
11% said no. So by now, we can all probably agree that the ABCD of bundle is grossly misunderstood and underpracticed. Most teams only focus on the first one or two letters of the bundle. I often hear, quote, oh yeah, we're practicing the bundle. We do daily SAT and SBT, unquote. But it is clear that their patients are usually sedated throughout their time on the ventilator and minimal mobility is happening. This is extremely impactful to patient outcomes. When a patient is intubated and sedation is started, it is like flipping an hourglass. That sand represents their brain and motor function, their muscle mass, their survival, their careers, their relationships, their identity, their independence, their dignity, their quality of life. For every day, even every hour, that sand is dropping. Time is running out. We need to have a sense of urgency to stop that hourglass to save their lives as a whole. Dr. Wes Ely has said that we can gauge compliance with the ABCDF bundle by asking three questions. Are they awake? Are they out of bed? Where is the family? Awakening trials are not the on and off switch at the end of critical illness that we have made them out to be. They should be done as soon as there is no longer an indication for sedation and be done with the mission of sedation cessation. I'm excited to have Dr. Ely explore th this further in this episode. Dr. Ely, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Um, I think most people know you by now, but will you give us a little intro to you? Sure. My name is Wes Ely. I'm an ICU doctor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And when I was a chief resident many years ago, you can see how much gray hair I've got. I designed the randomized control trial that checked if the ability to breathe spontaneously with SBTs was better than usual care. And we published this in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996 and showed that spontaneous breathing trials, SPTs, would shorten time on the ventilator by a full two days and cut complications in half and save over $5,000 per patient. That was back uh, almost 30 years ago, which is crazy. So it was $5,000 then without the right. inflation. Right, so now it'll be way more. Plus now we add spontaneous awakening trials, which is the topic for today, but it all started with us figuring out that we should just turn the ventilator off every day, once once per day, and see if the patient can breathe spontaneously and come off that breathing machine. And at the time, we thought that we might cause a bunch of heart attack. We were scared. We thought, I, I was nervous because it was my first study to ever design as a chief resident. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was it worked and it was a great advance. So then how did we get into awakening trials? So what happened was a few years later, J.P. Kress from the University of Chicago, instead of stopping the ventilator, decided to stop the sedation. And I'll never forget it. I was walking out of the building at the American Thoracic Society, and Jesse Hall, who is the senior author on the project, walked up and said, well, we've uh, we've added to the SBT project you did. Now we're turning off the, the sedation instead of the ventilator, and we're calling them sedation holidays or sedation vacations. And so that was the initial name for this, to, to once a day turn off the sedation and then Follow that by turning off the ventilator. But sedation holiday and SBT don't go together nearly as well. It's not trippingly falling across the tongue as as SAT SBT. So SAT SBT is an easier way to remember it. And using Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point principles, which is make something sticky so we can all remember it, we change the name to SAT SBT because step A would come first, awakening, and step B would come second. Okay, that makes more sense. And um, for me, I'd worked in Awake and Walk and I see where sedation was hardly ever started. So we rarely had to actually turn it off. And when there was an indication for sedation, we would just turn it off. It wasn't a, 
a quick tri- uh, holiday or break from it. So when I started later on in an IC that was implementing the 8F bundle, um, I was on a night shift and the orienting nurse said, oh, here we do this annoying thing. And don't, don't get, don't get upset. This is just a, this is almost a direct quote at five in the morning. You just got to turn the sedation down enough to see them move. That's how, you know, they haven't had a stroke. And when they get agitated, you turn it just right back on and you chart a failed vacation. And, um, that's it. That's how you know that they can't handle the, the ventilator and they need sedation. And to add to that, so that was that's a great anecdote of uh, of ways that nurses could misperceive the true humanistic benefit of allowing a person, an actual person, to wake up, use their brain, get mobilized, and find their life again. Because this person didn't know that that was harmful, and so this person doesn't mean bad. Nope. Uh, in fact, this person, this is a good example between the difference of benevolence and beneficence. This person is intending good, that's benevolence, but actually doing harm, which is maleficence. Uh, to actually do good, that's beneficence. And in this case, to actually do good, this is what medicine's really real goal is. Our goal is not benevolence. It, it, our goal is to actually do good, to achieve beneficence, we must allow people to come off the sedation to do this full SAT, let them wake up and come all the way above the water of their consciousness, and then try to get them out of the bed, mobilized, et cetera. And uh, I'll tell you, if you want me to, a story of a Canadian trial where the nurses kind of revealed to me what had actually gone on when they failed in their attempt to investigate SATs. Yeah, please. Okay, so when we did our years after J.P. Cress's study was in the New England Journal, which was 2001, and we had done our study, uh, maybe in 2000, but we had done our study in 1996. So these two things together were the became the SAT-SPT. We decided let's do a randomized control trial of both. And so we did that, and we published it in Lancet, and it was called the ABC study, where every day we turned off the sedation and we turned off the ventilator. And what we proved by just turning it completely off cold turkey that you could turn it back on if you needed to, but if you kept it off, you would shut benzos down by half, shut propofol and narcotics down by half. And what it did was it take, it took four days, days off the length of the ICU stay time on the ventilator and actually the hospital stay too. And we sent that paper to the new England journal and it got rejected because we didn't have one year outcomes. By the time all that had gone on, we had one year outcomes and the Lancet took it and published it. So the ABC trial was published by Gerard, the first author, and, and I was the senior author, Ely E.W. And, and we showed for the very first time in the history of medicine that in critical care, you could actually save lives by turning by using less sedation. And it was very significant. One out of every seven people who got the SAT-SPT combo was alive at the end of a year who would not have been otherwise. Well, wow. the, the Canadians redid this study, and it didn't find a difference. And a year after they published the paper in JAMA, I was walking around in the ICU where it had been headquartered, and the nurses, one by one, told me, I said, did y'all turn the sedation off? Y'all did that trial? And they said, oh, well, we turned it off until they would move a little bit, and then we would just turn it back on and ramp it all the way back up, because obviously we want the person snowed and, and immobilized. And the nurses, again, were not trying to be mean. They weren't trying to be bad. That was what they had been trained to do. So they were actually thinking this is the best for the patient. And I'm not poking fun at anybody. Yeah. Right. What are are you thinking right now, Kaylee, about these stories? Oh, I've absolutely seen it. And I've seen it 
you know, in my practice as a travel nurse, and I've seen it um, now with teams that I'm training. And I think this is rooted in sincere belief that sedation is sleep, that it's more comfortable and more humane for patients. So nurses are not provided any real insight into the reality of sedation, the risks and repercussions of it. So they don't really have a reason to wake them up, to keep them awake and mobile, to avoid those medications because they don't they are not trained to understand how dangerous they are. And so when we are trained on the awakening trials, the words vacation, interruption, um, trial, all insinuate that this is a brief break. And that reinforces this culture of do it just to check for stroke and then restart it because that's what's humane. And so what happened in that Canadian trial? What do they find on the, in the group that did the awakening trials? Whoop, you're muted. Sorry. What they found was that the that they restarted the sedation so often and used such high doses of benzos that they had a very high reintubation rate. They had a very high rate of failure of spontaneous breathing trials. And what we what we know from another trial that we did called our diurnal study, uh, Chris Seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R is the first author published in Critical Care Medicine, is that not every nurse increases the dose of sedation at night, but when you do, it doubles the likelihood of the patient failing their spontaneous breathing trial the next morning. And in the Canadian trial I was discussing with you, the average dose of benzodiazepines was in the triple digits, above 100 milligrams a day. That's a lot wow. of benzodiazepines. That's and Yeah. And they had a tremendous amount. And in the intervention group, it only went down to, I think, 80 milligrams or something. So it was not, it really, they had no separation of groups. And they had a ton of problems with people failing their SPTs. So when I'm looking with teams at their dashboard to see what the compliance is with the bundle, um, it can look like the B is very compliant. But I question this because they're still not doing mobility. They're still not, they're still having prolonged times on the ventilator. So you can chart an awakening trial and it looks very compliant in the charting. But are we actually doing awakening trials the way that they were meant to do? Are we striving to fulfill the purpose of awakening trials? How would you describe the purpose of an awakening trial? Well, Polly Bailey, who is your mentor at Utah, told me that the purpose of the waking trial is to find the person again and have them moving out of the bed. So if we simply shut off the drug for an awakening trial, an SAT, and the person doesn't move or get out of the bed, then we've actually failed, even if you know, even if we say we've done it and chart that we've done it, we actually haven't done it because the entire goal is to move the patient out of the bed so they can begin to have life experiences again. Absolutely. And um, do we need to restart it? Is this really just a break? Is this just an on and off switch? Or what are we working towards? The drug should be shut off and we should not restart the drug unless the patient becomes dangerous to self or others. If the patient is dangerous to self or others, RAS plus three, RAS plus four, then I say we restart the drug. But if they're just even zero plus one plus two seem agitated, that is not a reason to restart this drug because what they really are wanting is to move. So this person wants to mobilize and get around, and we can't do that if the person's still on drug and still has bolos of drug in their body. And I think this is one of the biggest barriers to having success, successful awakening trials is the agitation that can emerge. And there is a fear if you've had a patient come out thrashing and nurses are held at such high liability for any unplanned extubations or falls or line and tube removals. There's so much fear that if you have a patient at a RAS of one or two, 
when your back is turned, are they going to become a three or four? And so um, even at a one or two, you can see the discomfort and the terror in their eyes. And it's really jarring to the clinician. And so we're not trained to respond to that appropriately. We're not given tools to know how to assess and treat the root cause of that sarcomortar activity, of that agitation that we may be seeing. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Um, you're saying, talking about a thrass of three or four. That is the definition of agitation. I perceive that we're using the word agitation to describe any kind of sign of discomfort. Right. And, you know, when you wake up somebody, Kaylee, as you well know, as a very veteran ICU nurse, they're going to appear a little uncomfortable when they first start waking up. That's to be expected. That is not a downside. That's that's the norm. And so when they feel a little uncomfortable and, and you're looking at them, the idea then would be to bring the family in, have the family start talking to the patient. That's who they're going to respond to the best or simply guide them through it. You know, nurses, one of the basic tenets of nursing care is mobility. So the nurse can start realizing they look at, they look uncomfortable and perhaps a bit disconcerted because they need to move. They need to get out of the bed and be allowed to start walking using their muscles again, or even just to get to a bedside chair. This is the way that the person will start to realize what their why is to live. Remember that during delirium, they a lot of times don't know why they're there or what their why is. And if they lose their why to live, then they will lose hope. And we can't allow them to lose hope. And I think that is what gives nurses so much power when they do understand what's happening during sedation. When nurses finally understand that they're not sleeping under sedation, they're not necessarily comfortable, they're not necessarily pain-free, the nursing heart reacts to that. And so then they know when they're doing an awakening trial, if they see that, they're out to fix it. And they recognize that sedation doesn't fix it. I worry about sedation vacations being done at five in the morning as a standard, when there's no family at the bedside, no therapist, no one there to help a nurse. How can the nurse mobilize them? How can the nurse re respond appropriately to that discomfort if they're the only person there at the end of their shift with another patient to take care of? I don't think we exactly. for success. I, I totally agree. And I, I, I'm very opposed to these early AM SATs and SBTs. I think that the SATs, SBTs should be done when the rounding team is available. They don't have to be done in front of them, but you should, they should not be done until after the sign out of the new daytime nurse. And if that is the case, then the daytime nurse will be there and will be able to communicate to the team what went on during that SAT and SBT instead of saying, well, they failed it. Why'd they fail? I don't know. I wasn't here. It was done in the night team. That, that, that whole idea of, 
of 3 a.m. baths and 5 a.m. SATs, that's a convenience for the for the medical providers and is not anything that benefits the patient. Absolutely. And it, and it just it perceived as easier for the team, but a 5 a.m. awakening trial is not easier for the team. When it leads right. to days longer on the ventilator, days longer in the ICU and hospital, that's not easier for anybody. That's not in anybody's best interest. Um, I think we also don't train them to know how to perform an awakening trial. Um, I would love to see that be a role of the family saying, we're going to turn sedation off. You need to be here. You were vital to this. Get at the bedside, touch them, be involved, be part of this and preparing the family and saying, here's what they likely are experiencing under sedation. And here's how they may come out. And that's okay. We're going to embrace this. We're going to work them through it equip the family with the knowledge to then help the patient. But unless the clinicians have that knowledge, they can't share that with the families. And it, it makes a lot of um, difficult and even traumatic experiences for everyone. So now I think you're hitting Kaylee on something so critical for each ICU team out there listening, which is this, the physicians, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the care partners, all of them need to be on the same page that our goal here is to create a survivorship program for Ms. Smith, Mr. Jones, whoever this person is we're caring for. And that survivorship program begins the moment that they're intubated. So as soon as somebody's intubated and, and, and crashing, we then start to get control of their disease advancement. We start to get st stability. And right then, we need to start asking ourselves, when can we remove all this? What, when can this go away? And it's oftentimes later that day or the first thing the next morning. And if everybody is on the page with just for this person to survive and go out and enjoy their job, their life, their be the matriarchs and patriarchs of their families, um, I've got to prevent them from getting picks, post-intensive care syndrome. And the it all begins with SATs at pain control and the SATs, SPTs, which reduce their delirium. Mobilization, which reduces their delirium, having the families there, which is a beautiful thing to reduce delirium. And that's what creates in, in our minds, who is this entire person? I like, this, I like the expression, cada persona es un mundo. Each person is a world. And what we want to do is find out who is this person, this world, and let me do what I can to uplift them, magnify their dignity, and, um, and, and dive into their chaos so that I can provide lifting and healing for them, which is the definition of mercy. It's been so astounding to me to see what clinicians are capable of, what they come up with when they really see their patients as human. When they have that expectation and the desire to have their eyes open, have them be com communicative, autonomous, mobile. Um, these clinicians innately find ways to customize their care and achieve that that goal. Um, when they really want sedation off, they're looking for sedation cessation. And they know how each member of the team plays into achieving that goal. Magic happens. And suddenly the nurses are not left alone with this senseless and insane process of turning it on and off. Um, they can finally get it done. So it's really inspiring to hear um, occupational therapists talk about how the nurses are now grabbing them in the halls and saying, I'm having a hard time with getting sedation off, not just down, but off on this patient. Can you come help me? And the occupational comes in, does cognitive therapy, mobilizes them, and then they reassess, do we still need this at half dose? Can we turn it off? Turn it off and it's gone. So they work together to get this done because they no longer see it as just a quick holiday. They see this as a toxic and dangerous medication and then have to get it off and they work together to do that. 
I love that that teamwork between the OT and the PT and the respiratory therapist and the nurse. And 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 the OT is such a key person in all this because they engage with the family in a beautiful way to find out what matters to this person, what do they like to do, think about, do with their hands, do with their mind, and they can activate this person to give them activities which will again immediately begin to rebuild their manual dexterity and their brain with cognitive rehabilitation as well. And I have to put a shout out for the SLPs too. Um, one speech therapist in um, episode 103 on communication talked about how, I think this was in a PICU and it was a 14 year old that was on a ventilator. They were having a really hard time getting sedation off and they were trying to excavate him and um, he just was thrashing. So they were so smart to bring in SLP and said, we, we don't know what to do. And they figured out a way to, for him to communicate. He wrote, am I dying? That's why he was agitated. He was terrified that he was dying. Now, other teams and other environments, he probably would have been resedated, but they brought in a communication expert who valued him as a human and gave him the power to ask that question. And they brought in the family, the intensivist, the right people who sat down and talked with him, helped them understand. And he calmed down and sedation was off. That's a beautiful story. It really is. And that, that just shows you when you actually, when your antenna are up and you can have those antenna perceive who is this human being in front of me and how can I respond to their needs? Then you can find out what is it that they're, that's frightening them. What's the, what's the fear that's driving them and help them deal with that so they can make progress and move forward in a constructive way. And I, I love that your, your podcast, your walking home from the ICU is, is waking people up to the need, the needs of the person in the bed. And I refer back to, I think it's episode 76. I'm not totally positive. It's with Megan Wakely. She is, I'll link it into the transcript of this podcast um, episode. She was 32 year old, had been immobilized and sedated for eight days, had terrible delirium when she came to our facility in the wake and walk in ICU. She'd already been on benzos for days. She was had a lot of risk factors, very sick, people 14, 80%. We turned down sedation and she was a RAS of three or four. We had to turn it back on for a little while and then transition to propofol, cover for her benzodiazepine dependence with clonopin. We had to figure out what are the root causes. We didn't touch her fentanyl. We made sure that, that pain was treated, but we didn't just call it a failed vacation. We saw delirium. She was cam positive. This is a huge warning sign. We treated like a positive troponin and then brought everyone in together and, and, and pow out and said, what do we need to do moving forward? So they um, kept the sedation going to the level of a RAS of maybe plus one. Kept sedation going to a RAS of plus one and um, then mobilized her. They got her walking and she was weak. She was delirious. It was really hard um, for her. And it took a couple extra people. But after that, she slept. And we reevaluated. Does she still need the sex metatomidine? Nope. Turned it off. And then she would sleep. She'd wake up. And never again was she RAS of three or four. But maybe she was a RAS of one or two. They'd walk her. She'd sleep. And within less than 48 hours, even though her lungs got worse, her delirium was gone. She was off restraints. She was communicating. Everything got better. And after three plus weeks of mechanical ventilation, she walked out the doors. But it's because that team approached an awakening trial with the goal of assessing for her needs, getting her human, getting her liberated from sedation and delirium and setting her up to succeed. You know, while you were talking, you, you heard me say, let me call you back. The ICU team just called me and I know what they're calling me about. We've had a guy in, in keeping with your story. It's a, that's an amazing story. We've had a man up in, up in the ICU now for a week. And every single day we've been transitioning off of drugs and, uh, and try to control his agitation uh, without revealing any of his name or any HIPAA violation issues. 
um, he has had uh, enough of a neurologic injury that's creating a lot of anxiety for him. And we've had to use very high doses of dexmedetomidine. Um, I don't have any financial conflicts of interest with dexmedetomidine, by the way. Um, but this is a generic uh, alpha-2 agonist that we're using for him. And we are now uh, we now have him off of that medication, and he's transitioned over to an oral form of an alpha-2 agonist. And he's doing quite well. And people did not think that that was possible. But it, your story was one of, dil of due diligence. And our story is one of due diligence where we said, we're not just going to keep this person snowed with GABAergic drugs. It's not going to do him any good. And I'm hoping that when I call them back here in just a few minutes, that they tell me that he's had a great night. He uh, He's now fully on PO drugs uh, that are controlling his agitation because of this neurologic injury and this disinhibition of his and that we can get him out of the ICU today. That's that's what we've been, that's been our goal. And that's the ultimate goal of awakening trials to see and make sure that patients are safe to be off sedation. And if they're not, if something's happening, why is it happening? We're going to treat that. We're going to try to minimize the risks of picks moving forward. And your team is going, all the teams listening, if you just remember this, the 1990s, early 2000s way of sedating people and then the COVID way of sedating people are wrong. They are not good. It is not in the patient's best interest. I'm not saying that we deliberately did anything wrong during COVID. We did the best we could at the beginning. But now that we know that PPE works, the family should be at the bedside, that uh, they do not need to be behind the glass uh, away from us. We can we can mobilize them in the room even. If they can't come out of the room for some form of isolation, I have what's called a perpetual U. And I have them walk around the bed in, a, in the shape of a U. And they just go back and forth, back and forth when they're on isolation. So even those are not reasons to keep somebody in the bed. And all of this is geared towards humanism. That is lifting the human being up and respecting their innate pricelessness so that we as clinicians will not lose sight of why we are there at the bedside and what a gift it is to be with these people, to help them find their why to live, find their way back. And, uh, and when I say get back into the land of the living. And maybe... In addition to awakening trials, we can use the term rehumanization. It's time to rehumanize them. Yes. We, we put people in the old way. We put them through a dehumanization chamber. And now I want to open up a rehumanization chamber of the ICU so we can truly say that it's an intensive care unit where I see you with my eyes and I see you with my mind. And uh, this is the beauty of the ICU liberation program, the ABCDFs. And it's really not just about shortening length of stay. It's about lifting people up when they least expect it. And we can be a big part of that in the ICU as, as the team. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for all of your work throughout our community and for sharing this information with us today. And I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you. Thank you, Kaylee. I appreciate you. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.